Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Solvable. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Every single instance where something has transformed our society for good, there's always been this fear. Some of the greatest advancements in our society are directly linked to technological breakthroughs. Whether it was the wheel, the printing press, or the microchip, the world has been transformed from generation to generation. In many cases, Transformation was not greeted with acceptance and quick adoption, but instead with anger, fear, and apprehension. And this is the reception that has met artificial intelligence. That potential negative of being uh, reliant on this software, on AI, on robotics, that the negatives are less than the positives. But it's not just the fear of reliance on these technologies. It's also the fear of the technology magnifying and multiplying our worst human tendencies. There have been troubling instances where bias in robotics and AI have been identified as a potential disqualifying factor for their wide deployment. These systems have some aspect of bias. Time and time and time again, they're still better than the human biases. Dr. Ayanna Howard is the Dean of the College of Engineering at The Ohio State University and one of the few non-white male roboticists in the field. So I don't think that these systems can ever get to zero bias because there will always be a group that the system has not interacted with. It might be that it's perfect, it's perfect, it's perfect, and then there's um, an unknown community in, you know, South Wales somewhere that had never interacted, right? And now it doesn't work with them. Dr. Howard founded a robotics company called Zyrobotics. They develop mobile therapies and educational products for children with special needs. She firmly believes that the proper use of AI and robotics is an invaluable asset to humanity. Underrepresentation in robotics and AI is a solvable problem.
So when I was a kid, me and my sister got left at home a lot during the summers, which meant that we watched a lot of reruns on television. And one of the things that we watched all the time was The Biotic Woman. And I heard that that was a favorite of yours as well. It was. Um, Although I will tell you, The Bionic Woman, when I was young was current. So I'm sure you must have saw the reruns. Just just saying. I did. I saw the reruns. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was that was my favorite. And I think what you know, I was always into anything that was science fiction, everything from, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Star yes. Trek. Yes. You mean the original? Oh, the, yeah, no, yeah. The original, not the ones that they try yeah. to remake over and over and over again. Back then, it was all of it was like new, right? It was like fascinating. Yeah. So the Bionic Woman was this show where uh, this this woman was horribly mangled in like this this horrific car accident, right? It like was her a skydiving accident. It was a skydiving accident. Yep. And she, she she would have died, right? And instead, the doctors took her and rebuilt her. Basically, added the bionic parts, and she would go around saving the world, which was 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 awesome. But she was human; like she had a personality. That was the the nice thing about that. Yes, yeah, like she wasn't exactly a robot, but she was like she was a robot. <laughs> it was actually, if you think about it, there was only two sci-fi shows that showed women in like a positive superhero light. One was Wonder Woman. And one was the Bionic Woman. So like one of the earliest forms of a superhero I saw was the Bionic Woman. So I appreciate that. But tell me a little bit how about how that watching that show kind of piqued your interest in STEM. Well, so when I was watching all of these things, it, it also um, coincided with the time in middle school where you have to define the rest of your life. Um, so they still do this, right? You have to write these essays about what do you want to do when you grow up? And mm-hmm. so I wanted to build a bionic woman. So that's what I wanted to do. Now, of course, as my teacher said, well, building a bionic woman is not actually a career. So you have to think <laughs> about like, what label do you want? And so originally I thought I wanted to be a doctor because that was who put her together. So what changed? I took biology <laughs> and we were dissecting frogs. And I remember we had to learn how to kill the frogs mm-hmm. and open them up, right? I mean, this was this was the nope. days because you had to do this. Yeah. And I hated it. I mean, I absolutely, and I was always good at math and science. And I was like, I do not like this course. And then I thought, man, if I don't like biology, how am I going to go to med school? How am I going to actually start this whole process of being a doctor? But I had a teacher who said, hey, Why not think about engineering? So what is it that you do now? I am a roboticist, which means my research and my practice is about building, designing, programming robots with a focus on um, the human, improving the human quality of life with an even more focused initiative effort on children, so pediatrics. And you started off designing rovers for NASA? So my, my very first job uh, as a roboticist, um, I was a robotics researcher. And my task was thinking about future rovers and how do we enable them to navigate long-range traversals uh, on Mars. So how did you go from rovers to the types of robots that you're making today? 
you're really thinking about them in a way of being uh, assistive towards uh, humans. Yeah. So I think one of the things about my perception on, on robotic systems is really the reason why I do it is to assist us and improve our quality of life. And, and you know, mind you, when I used to talk about robotics, the first thing that people would say would be like, oh, you're, you're the one that is taking over the jobs. You're the one that took, you know, a lot of people in manufacturing. I had people say, yeah, my grandfather got fired because of your robots. Like that was a common thing. And I understood that from very, very early on. And those were not the robots that I wanted to build and design. But I think it's because I always understood that I am part of an ecosystem. I am part of a community. And my responsibility is to become a contributing member of the community. And anything I did, because my talent was my mind, anything I did was about a overall positive net result versus a negative. You know, I was the kid that had to go out into the neighborhood and paint over the graffiti and pick up the, like, that was our Saturday. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't get to go out and play like the other kids until I had done my chores, which was, you know, all of these community kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just grew up realizing that it was about community, but also my talent was my mind. It was how I designed and thought about robotics. When it comes to the types of robots you design to help uh, people who have disabilities, is there anything personal that happened to you that made you connect with them specifically? I had always done um, these STEM, so science, technology, engineering, math camps, uh, primarily to engage girls and I'll say underrepresented minorities, since that's what we were called back in the day. I had ran this one camp where there was this young lady who had a visual impairment. She was bright, bright, like smart, but the system did not work for her because it wasn't accessible. And this was the first time I'd heard this word, like what is accessible and what is assistive technology because I had no idea. And what it was is like, I saw a problem. I was like, this like makes no sense. Why is our technology not able to be used by everyone? As an engineer, you know, I see these kinds of problems as basically a challenge to design a solution. It's just the way I'm, I'm geared and, and think about it. And so that started me down this rabbit hole of looking at this target demographic, understanding that we as engineers aren't really addressing the needs of all the different populations. And I was always a proponent of diversity. And I didn't really understand until that moment that diversity includes race, includes ethnicity, includes gender, but it also includes ability and disability. So you have a number of apps, games, and toys all under the company Zyrobotics. Is there a particular product that you're like, you're especially proud of? I actually enjoy all of them. I will say the one that I especially like is one called Tommy the Turtle Learned to Code. Help your kids learn the basic of coding with Tommy the Turtle. Your little one will absolutely love interacting with Tommy and his colorful friends as they gain valuable skills in programming. I can get a four-year-old to learn how to code and love it. And you basically have to do things like, you know, Tommy wants to play with Cat, but Cat's too far away. Can Tommy move towards Cat so they can play? Right. And so there's always these, this, you know, goofy rhyming and stuff. And so then it'll go through like, okay, in order to do this, you know, you have to put in this little button, which is move one space. Right. And so it walks you through this. And at the end, it says, guess what? You've done your first coding program. 
Now let's try with dog. And so it basically builds up this sequential understanding sequences, understanding logic with this objective of, again, having friends, playing around and things like that. And uh, the Tommy the Turtle Learn to Code is also accessible. So if you have a children with a motor disability, it actually has accessibility functions. So you can use things like switch devices. Um, if you have slight visual impairments, there are things you can do with the, with the print. So I, I'm most proud of that because I've actually seen like four-year-olds like excited about coding, which is amazing and fascinating. What types of benefits do you think children with disabilities receive from working with robots that you design? So one of the things that we know is that with anything, repetition, repetition, repetition is good. The problem is, is that the amount of, and I'll just call it exercise, which is repetition, the amount of exercise you have to do has to be done consistently, has to be done in a repeated fashion. And typically you need someone to kind of guide you because, you know, they're kids. And we just don't have enough resources. So most parents do not have, are not as you know, privileged enough to bring in a human therapist into the home every day to work with their child. Um, and so what we focused on was designing these robotic systems that are adaptive so they have artificial intelligence in them so that they can work with the kids basically every day. So they are augmenting the services of a human therapist, but in the home environment. Did you see an uptick in people being interested in this type of technology during COVID when, you know, it wasn't so easy to have like a human aid in the house to help with children with disabilities? Yeah, so I will say yes. And that goes across the board in terms of um, AI, so artificial intelligence software, as well as robots. There was an uptick in the use since March of 2020. Um, And it's primarily because of the fact that you know, humans were dangerous, right? Like we know this, this was the whole thing. It's like you're shut in, you're locked in because other humans who are outside of your community, outside of your home are dangerous, whereas robots were not. And so there was this whole change and shift on the perception of robots. Like robots were more of like, oh, this actually enables me to have a little bit of semblance of livelihood and we saw an uptick in companion robots because, again, you couldn't have, you know, your young grandkids, for example, coming in or therapists necessarily coming in. But robots could because they were safer than people. There's folks that that, that feel like our addiction to technology is a problem and building technology that assists humans in whatever capacity kind of builds on that addiction a little bit, or it feeds into that addiction rather. What's your response to that, to people that would would say that maybe we need less technology and not more? Yeah, so I actually have two answers to that. One is, yes, it does feed on these addictions. Like my robots would not work if I didn't model them based on humans' propensity to interact with, with these systems, right? It wouldn't work. So we know that as a fact. But I would say that that potential negative of being uh, reliant on this software, on AI, on robotics, the, the negatives are less than the positives. And the positives are it improves so, so many things. It makes access much more accessible in terms of, you know, equal opportunity about jobs, education, food sources, and things like that. So the positives, I think, outweigh the negatives over and over and over and over again. 
when you see this type of interaction and you see, uh, you know, uh, children interacting with the, the technology you've created and the tools that you've created, how do you feel? Like, how does that make you feel to see them interacting with it successfully? My very first moment, uh, I remember it to this day, we were, this is at Georgia Tech, it was one of our very first studies. We had a gamified therapy uh, protocol called Super Pop. We had to pop these bubbles and it was linked to some movement therapy. So I remember we go into the home and there was this young child, a child with cerebral palsy who was in a wheelchair and severe spasticity, so very limited movements. And I remember the game because the game adapts to the abilities of the child. And so, you know, the very first one, it started adapting, started adapting. And I remember at one instance, this child touched the bubble because it's popping bubbles, right? And I just, I remember like there was this smile. It was like the sun like shone in this room. It was like all of the watts that are out there, it just shone in his face, pure joy. And it was like, you you couldn't have sold it. You couldn't have bottled it. You couldn't have like Bitcoined it, right? It was mm-hmm. like that pure joy that only a child could show. And at that point, that was like my first moment going like, Ugh oh my gosh, I feel really, 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 really good. I like this feeling. I really do. It makes me realize that I'm doing the right thing, impacting directly someone's life. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're now working with uh, children with disabilities, uh, specifically in pediatrics. And, you know, you said you got there because you first wanted to uh, work with, with women. And being a woman in STEM, I know, is not the easiest path for most do you do you find that you had any personal experiences that kind of led you to say that I want to kind of kick the ladder down for more women to come into this field? Yes. When I started um, at NASA and things like that, I was always passionate about working in with, with young kids. Um, actually, even in undergrad, I tutored at the local high school and things like that. So I'd always done that just because I remember growing up you know, engineers would come to my school and I was inspired. And so I just felt that that was a responsibility as an engineer. I didn't really feel that I had a responsibility to be, quote unquote, I guess, a role model until I was much older. And it was because I suddenly realized that I was tired of not seeing myself. Mm. And therefore, like, I'm, I'm old, so it's not like I can produce myself right now. That's my age. But I sure could start reaching and making sure that the generation behind me saw themselves and didn't have to go through the same things. Mm-hmm. And, and so it then became more of a mission than, you know, things like, oh, I'm doing outright now. No, 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 no. It's a mission because it sucks when you don't see yourself. Are you speaking specifically about women or also specifically about Black women? So I actually have three. It's women marginalized communities, so Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and it's also Black women. So it was actually three uh, because there, those three, there's not a lot of us in, in any stages at, at the upper echelon. It's not a lot. How do you think enfranchising those groups that you're talking about, how do you think that's solved? Do you think it's just solved with uh, them just seeing you in the room or what's the extra step you feel that needs to be taken in order to uh, draw more of those people into the room? Yeah, so being able to see yourself is is only the first step. But it is an important step because if you don't even see yourself, you're not even going to think that it's something for you, right? So one is about, you know, getting this motivation. The other is about ensuring that there's opportunities. And so, you know, if I see myself, but I don't have access, I don't have the curriculum in the schools, I don't know, you know, where am I supposed to go in order to learn how to do artificial intelligence or robotics, then I might see myself, but I don't have a path for it, right? And so it's about seeing yourself, believing in that, and then having the opportunities to excel, uh, irrespective of your environment or how you're growing up or those individuals who are around you. So there's a lot of people that are afraid of a future with robots in it. What would you, <laughs> how would you uh, talk to them? And, I, and you know what? I, I was one of those people. I watched iRobot and I was like, no, no, not like that. <laughs> not when it's easy to hack anything these days. Um, what do you think the future looks like with robots in it as a roboticist? What do you think that future? And actually, and I'm sorry to take another step back, but those Boston, those Boston Dynamics videos are really scaring people when they see the robots doing the backflips. And then, of course, we've all seen The Matrix. I'm now referencing all the movies. But what would you say to people who have a fear of the future with robots in it? The fear that people have, honestly, is the fear of the uncertainty, which 
you're going to have irrespective of what it is. You know, I think about, you know, horse and carriage and the cars came. I'm sure there were people like, oh, automobiles, you know, they kill people. Like people die in automobiles. Why would you ever get it? Right? Like every single instance where something has transformed our society for good, there's always been this fear. Always, always. We can go historically when this has happened. Um, and so robots and, and AI, artificial intelligence, is now that technology that is causing fear because of the uncertainty. And this is happening. And whether you like it or not, whether you're afraid or not, it is happening and it will accelerate, period, guaranteed. And so what I say is figure out how to become part of the solution. If you're, you know, fearful of the iRobots or fearful of, you know, Boston Dynamics kind of thing, well, become a computer scientist and go work for those companies so that you don't have those <laughs> kind of robots being developed, right? Like this is like part of the solution and also allows you to conquer your fear, but also take charge of your future. I don't know why the idea of me taking years and years of trigonometry just so I could go into Boston Dynamics and be like, hey, what's going on in here? What do you guys do with these robots? Just sounded very, very funny to me. But I, 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 lo I love that. I think that's a great solution. Well, someone will. Hopefully someone's listening. He's like, yeah, I love that idea. I'm doing it now. <laughs> Can we expand on the bias and racism for a minute? Those stories do come to life. And I feel like there has been some truth to the, some of them in the research that I've done. Can you talk a little bit about maybe dispel some of the uh, some of the fear that folks are having when it comes to bias and racism from artificial intelligence and from robots? Like what what exactly are we seeing there? Yeah, so there is uh, there is truth. So uh, a lot of the systems that are deployed that are out there have aspects of bias. And, and what the definition of bias is that there are differences in the results, in their behaviors toward different types of people based on gender, based on racial, ethnic identity, sexual orientation, religion, like basically any type of attribute you can think about, uh, these systems have some aspect of bias. So that's the negative. The positive, though, is that time and time and time again, they're still better than the human biases. Mm. I think our systems can be better. I honestly think we can design and build robots that can make us better humans, that can make us less biased humans. I totally believe that. But unless we really focus on that, we're just going to keep doing the same thing and, and propagate and just continuing the biases that we have of the past. That's what I'm afraid of. What do you say to the activists who just heard this and heard you say that robots are biased, but less biased? How do you calm them down to say, uh, to get, because I'm sure what people are going to want to hear you say is like, they're not biased at all. Like we get there, we get to a place where we're using these machines and the data we're feeding into them and the way that they're interacting with the world makes them get down to zero bias. Is it even possible for that to happen uh, when they live in a world with biased humans creating robots? Yeah, no. So I don't think that these systems can ever get to zero bias because there will always be a group that the system has not interacted with. It might be that it's perfect, it's perfect, it's perfect. And then there's um, an unknown community in, you know, South Wales somewhere mm. that had never interacted, right? And now it doesn't work with them, right? So mm -hmm. I don't think that we can ever get because as humans, we're unique and we're different. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's an attribute that we're going to miss. So mm. I don't believe in zero bias. What I do believe though, is that because these systems are based on data, 
and they're not based on our lived experiences, it means that you can basically quiz them. You can look at them, right? So you can basically say, look, I have you know, this person who is from a rural community that is, identifies as Black, that's female, and I have the exact same person, but now we change from female to male. You know, what's the outcome? Right. Like you can ask that and be like, oh, wait, the differences are here. OK, we, we have some bias. Let's go fix this. Now you ask a human the same question. It'd be kind of hard to figure out if they're biased or not, mm. just just in general. And so that's what gotcha. I'm saying is, is like you can quiz the AI. And because it's based on data and an algorithm, it can give you the answer. You ask a human and if they know they're biased, they're going to lie. And if they don't know their bias, they're just going to make up excuses because they don't realize that they are putting their own lived experience in their decision. So you would say the difference between uh, robot bias and human bias is the ability to be, uh, I guess, radically transparent in the fact that we can open them up, look at their code and see what the answer is. Correct. Although we don't do that now. And that's why a lot of this stuff is going on about AI and bias is because companies that are putting these out are not opening it up. They're not doing the assessment. They're not doing the analysis. It's other researchers like myself that are, you know, third party looking at and be like, hey, there's something (laughs) going on here, right? It shouldn't be our role and our responsibility, but that's what we're doing for the community because the companies are not doing it for themselves. What do you think our listeners can do to kind of support this mission and uh, improve the marketplace and kind of help more with learn more about AI and assistive technologies, but kind of also engage with it more? One thing that I think everyone has to figure out is how to code and how to program, honestly. The jobs are changing. And even the jobs you think are, you know, well, what about law? What about policing? What about, guess what? If you don't know how to code, there's going to be a whole next generation that's going to come take your job. It's going to be humans that take it, but it's because they know how to do the new types of jobs that are going to be out there. So that's one thing. Everyone needs to learn how to program and code. Not not be a computer scientist, but learn that as a skill set. Second is, is I think people need to do a little bit more investigation of the things that are out there instead of just listening to media. Uh, because a lot of things that are out are the horror stories. So what types of publications or media sources do you think that listeners can go to in order to get accurate information about uh, STEM, about robotics, about science and technology generally? So I actually personally like Wired. It's a technology magazine, but it is really accessible to like a general audience and it shows both sides. So it has stories that, you know, talk about the the negatives of AI, but it also in the same article will talk about the positive. Um, So I think in terms of being accessible, that's one of my favorite. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Ayanna Howard is a roboticist and dean of the College of Engineering at The Ohio State University. Be sure to check out our show notes to find out ways you can learn more about robotics and how to get involved. Next week, we're talking about vaccine passes and how they might help solve the problem of safe reentry into some of our busiest cities. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research by David Ja. Booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Sasha Mathias, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. 
Special thanks to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Emily Rostick, Maya Koenig, and Khadijah Holland. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. It helps us find our way to the ears of new listeners. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Thanks for listening. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.